Tonight's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be has been before and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Well, let's uh, turn to Ecclesiastes 3. It's page 670, if you've got a pew Bible. Ecclesiastes 3. We talk a lot about time, don't we? We talk about saving time, using time, and keeping time. We complain about not having enough time. We ask for time and for the time. We lose time and we gain time. We give things time. We take time. We feel as if time passes quickly and sometimes slowly. And sometimes we feel as if time is slipping through our fingers. One thing is clear. We are creatures who are in time. We are born and we live for a time and we pass through time. And then our time here comes to an end and we die. We're creatures of time. And that might settle us or unsettle us or frustrate us. But recognizing that, Ecclesiastes says, 
is one of the keys to living our lives well. And we're going to see that it makes all the difference in the world to live our time-bound lives knowing the eternal God. We've already seen uh, in this book already that the author, the, the preacher as he calls himself, who we think is Solomon, he, he is uh, teaching us how to live in, in God's world. God's world which is both beautiful and broken. It's created good and yet is fallen. And if you've been with us, you'll know that, that he captures our attention in the first couple of, of chapters by really quite brutally pointing out to us that, that life is fleeting. It, it is a vapor. The reality is, he says, we will die and we will be forgotten and the world will roll on without us. And that's just that. And then last week we saw that, that Solomon gave us a report of all the activities of life that he threw himself into, and he threw himself into them with great gusto, things like pleasure and possessions and projects and wisdom. And again, he concluded that these things are also fleeting, and they don't bring us any ultimate gain. That's an important word. Uh, no, nothing to really show for it of significance at the end of it all. And we do so need to hear that because the very things that he threw himself into in the hope of some ultimate gain are the very things that we often so uh, look to uh, in the hope that they will bring us significance. But the fact is that they are passing and so are we, and therefore they cannot provide that. But he ends, as we saw last time, by pointing out to us that, that pleasure ultimately comes from God and, and from seeing the things that he gives us, the good things that he gives us as gifts to be enjoyed rather than as steps to some other destination. And now he turns in chapter 3 to explore the, the, the reality a little bit further that we are just here for a time. We are time-bound creatures. And he begins this chapter with his uh, marvelous and well-known poem. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the birds releasing this in, anybody know the year? Nobody has a clue what I'm talking about. 1965, turn, turn, turn. No, do you know, remember? remember? Uh, anyway, uh, 19, I wasn't even born then. And uh, before then, uh, before then, it was, it was written by uh, Pete Seeger, if you, if you remember that, you're doing well, 1950s. But Solomon released it first, and that's something we should understand. Uh, a couple of comments about the poem, uh, first of all. It is, it, it's a beautiful poem. It consists of uh, 14 statements, little pairs, and as you read it, you, you find yourself sort of beginning to fall into a, a rhythm that reflects just, the, as we've already seen in chapter one, the sort of the rhythmical nature of, of life. It, it's pretty hard to analyze it. Uh, many have tried. Uh, some of the things are opposites, like time to born and a time to die. Uh, and, and the point is perhaps that they encompass everything in between. Uh, so if there's a time for the bookends of my life, birth and death, uh, there's a time for all the activities in between those bookends. I think that's uh, the implication of that. Um, and some of the pairs are, are, are sort of hard to understand. Scattering and gathering stones, for example. It might be preparing fields for, for planting. It might be the activities of an army who would scatter stones on an enemy's fields to make them hard to cultivate. 
And it's been pointed out that, that the relational nature of life is reflected in many of these pairs. Life is, is relational. So much of life is done with others or, or in the case of war, against others, with others, uh, in some way relating to others. These are not commands, of course. Solomon is not saying there's a time when you should go to war or a time when you should kill particularly. He is saying the times come when these things happen. This is what life brings. And with the varied nature of all of these uh, pairs, the implication is that pretty much all of life uh, is being covered here. All all of life is experienced here. And and as verse 1 says, for everything there is a a season. And that's backed up by the fact that there are are 14, a sort of a seven, uh, double sevens, you know, the the sort of number of perfection and wholeness in, in the Bible. And overall, this is, is, is this sort of thrust that, that the seasons of life just come upon us. We don't choose many of these things. Some of you were foolish enough to write down New Year's resolutions, all these things that you were going to achieve this year. I was foolish enough to do some of that as well. But, but, but some of these things, you, you, you really... You really can't control, can you? You make every effort and so on, perhaps. But there are lots of things that that, that we just don't control. They just come uh, to us. And that's a reality that we need to acknowledge. We sometimes think that we're in control of our lives. But if we're honest, we're not. And and so many things come our way that we just have no control over. But implicit in all of this is that while our lives are not totally in our control they are not out of control. Because the preacher is going to tell us a lot in this chapter about God. And one of the central convictions that he has is that God, being God, he's in control. It's probably why he says in verse 1, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. You know that he normally describes life here and now as under the sun. But here he seems to change it to life under heaven. It means the same thing here and now, but it's under heaven to to hint at least, as if uh, to remind us that that God is in control, and he's in control of what goes on around us. And, And this becomes hugely important for us as we live in this world. The Christian understands that while life may have a rhythm, life is not random. God is at work. Uh, David says, Solomon's father, Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What a statement. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And, And that changes things. doesn't mean that we understand what God is doing. End of verse 11 says that. He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So many of God's ways are inscrutable to us because he is God and we are not. If we understood all the things that he was doing, we we would be God. Those things are, are close to us, but we do know that he's at work. We know that our times are in his hands, and we'll, we'll say more about that later. Well, whenever the preacher finally finishes his poem, he comes back with that gnawing question that we've already 
seen. Where is the gain? Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? It's really interesting that, that usually whenever this passage is read, it stops at verse 8. But the question at verse 9 is the really key question, isn't it? What is the, the gain for it all? All of these things that come to us, all of these things that life holds with their joys and their sorrows and their ups and their downs, and what is there to show for it at the end? The birds didn't sing about that. What has the worker to show for his toil? And rather than leaving us without an answer, he starts to, to talk about God. And as David Gibson says in his fantastic book, the times of my life are not the only times that there are. And, and that's just so important to getting a grasp on our lives. The times of our lives are not the only times that there are. The here and now is not all that there is. There is an eternity, and there is a God to whom we are accountable. And really, eternity and, and judgment, that accountability, are crucial for understanding our here and now and for living in our here and now. Now, as we think about our place in time, one of the, the things that we need to acknowledge is that God is so very, very different from us. And, and how is he different from us? Well, one of the things that we talk about is that he is eternal. And, and what does that mean? It, 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 is, it is more than just the fact that he is everlasting, although he is that. But one of the things about God is that he is outside of time. He, he, he made time. E eternity for, for God is not a, an endless succession of moments that's going to just stretch on forever. Uh, that will be eternity for us. But, but, but God is unaffected by time. So if you think about it like this, all moments are before God at once. All moments are before God at once. He, he made time, so all of time is available to him. He is present at all points in history. If we want to think of an image, I've heard someone describe this as, as time, like a great rug uh, spread around the feet of the Lord, like, 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 like we might spread a rug around our feet. And so he, he is able to be present at, at, at every point of the the timeline. It's hard to get our head around, but, but it means, for example, that the, the passing of time does not lessen things with God. You know, that, that's the way sometimes the dynamic of our relationships with God uh, take, that, that we do something that we don't maybe want to talk to God about, and, and then we leave it for a while, and it sort of lessens in our heads and we sort of assume that it will be somehow less present with God too. But, but it's just as present with God now as it was then. Everything is current to him. And, and our great hope as time-bound people, as limited people, is that we may know and trust the God who made time. Well, what we're going to do just in, in the remaining time that we have here is, is mention a few themes that, that sort of uh, emerge from uh, this passage. First of all, beauty. 
beauty. You see, in verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, I think lots of people uh, misunderstand that this is not saying that ultimately everything about life is good. Uh, This is a statement about God's being in control and God in time working out his good purposes. And that's not easy for us if we're in the middle of a a difficult time or we've come through a difficult time, but I'm hoping that this will will give us some hope in these things. For for what it seems to be saying is that God is at work so that, that all things that have happened in our lives will ultimately be made beautiful. It's not saying that the bad thing that happens to us is a good thing. It's not saying that. It's saying that God's power is so great that, that even the, the bad things will serve to make the whole a beautiful thing. In other words, that one day we will get to heaven and, and we will look back on our lives and there'll be so much that is, is dark and difficult. There'll be lots of tears, no doubt. And then we'll get to heaven and, and we'll say, ah, now I see. It, it, it fits so beautifully. Your, your plan, Lord, is, is not senseless. In other words, your struggles and, and, and your tears and my tears are, are not in vain. You know that the, the Psalms talk about God holding our tears in a, in a bottle? It's not in vain. David Gibson uses the illustration of seeing the the glimpse of a film. You know, you walk into a room where somebody's watching a film and you see a few seconds of it and you you think, I I have no idea what's going on. And and it looks a bit rubbish. It looks a bit senseless. And and he says, our our, our lives are just like that. They're they're, they're 15 seconds. We we, we cannot see, we cannot see the the big story that God is writing. But, But we can have confidence that the overall story is, is beautiful. And we'll gasp and we'll say, Lord, you've done all things well. And Gibson says, so much we, of our 15 seconds we spend questioning the director when, when we should say, I, I, I can't see all this now, but I know that you know where we're going. Cross is a great example of this, isn't it? You know, if, if you were to have walked past the cross 2,000 years ago, and you see this, this man bloody and bruised and suffering. You, you, you might hear a few of the things that he says. You would think that they were odd or, or intriguing. But you would never begin to see the, the significance of, of what was happening. Your small glimpse into, into that window of Jesus' life w- would not begin to see what was really going on. That atonement was being made for, for my sin, for your sin. That, that a door was being opened for me to come to, to God. You see, we, we, we see so little. And God is doing so much. Uh, Francis Needeth Schaefer often spoke of the, the dark threads of life as being like those dark threads that are woven into a tapestry and, and, and they have their place and they, they cause the, the overall picture to be it's so much more beautiful than it would otherwise have been. I don't know if you know the poem by Corrie ten Boom, the, the, the uh, tremendous missionary. This is what she said. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. 
Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Beauty. Then there's longing, verse 11, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is such an important statement. God has written eternity into our hearts. This is, is why, in part, nothing on earth can fully satisfy you. Because this is not your ultimate home. We must know this. And, and even the most skeptical unbeliever, and maybe you're here, you're listening, and you're, you're skeptical. Even the most skeptical person has times whenever they know this to be the case. They might even actively, they, they, they might even actively suppress it, but they, they, the nagging question is, is always there. Is there not more than this? And we ask that because there is more than this, and the sense of that has been just woven into our DNA. There is eternity. And it's an eternity to which we are heading, and it's an eternity for which we were made. C.S. Lewis writes about this beautifully. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were not meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. That's a fairly well-known quote. But Phil Reichen drew my attention to another one from one of his books called The Weight of Glory. And there, Lewis describes the longing for a reality beyond this life like this. He speaks of it like the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. We were made for eternity. God has put us put it in our hearts. And you see, if, if, if some of us are, are, are watching and we're, we're not yet believers or we're here and we're not yet believers, there's a sense in which I think we know this to be true. There's a, a longing in us for eternity and for the one who is eternal. It's why Augustine said, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. And, and, and friends, that's not just a word to the, to the seeker. We saw last week that, that even as Christians, we're so prone to, to look for satisfaction in the gift rather than the giver, aren't we? Longing. Justice. 
That's what dominates the last uh, verses, last six verses from uh, verse 16. There's a, a frustration that so often there is no justice to be found in this life. Verse 16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, uh, there was wickedness. Do you imagine what it would have been like to have been poor in the ancient Near East and to have suffered an injustice? Someone had defrauded from you, defrauded you or stolen from you, and you, you got, somehow you got your day in court, and then you find out that the, the judge had been bribed by your opponent, and the decision just goes against you, even though all the evidence speaks the other way. And you've got nowhere to go, no recourse. And that seems to have happened with some regularity because it is that sort of situation that Solomon is referring to here where he speaks about wickedness in the place of justice. There is wickedness in the, in the courts of the land, he's saying. But he says in verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. So, so there will be ultimate justice. Not, not only will we see where everything fits, but, but everything will be put right. It's a big thing for us to grasp, isn't it? But if we were sitting in North Korea, it would be a bigger thing. And yet equally true. It's an incredibly different way of looking at the world and our lives. From, from a mere human point of view, our, our deaths don't seem to be very different from that of the animals. That's his point, I think, in verses 18 to 21. From our earthly time-bound perspective, we cannot see what happens beyond the grave. From the perspective of death, uh, of the death of a person, it might not be anything different than the death of a, an animal. But, but once we listen to what God says, then we see things entirely differently. We see that people are people with an eternal future and, and God will make all the wrong right. That, that, that actually seems to be behind verse 15 too, which has been a verse that's difficult to translate. That which the ESV says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. For, for us, the past is past, isn't it? We can't do anything about it. And so if wrong was done to us, well, there's maybe nothing we can do. We can't change it. We can perhaps forget it. If we can't forget it, then it gnaws away at us. But there's another way. Because what this seems to be saying is that those things that are passed to us are not passed to God. He seeks that which has been driven away, that which time has ushered into the inaccessible reaches. But they're not inaccessible to God, and so he is able to make all things right. His justice is never frustrated by time. And so that third way of not forgetting it and not allowing it to eat us up is actually to trust that God will deal with it. David Gibson says this beautifully, God will bring every single one of my moments into his eternal presence and put right what has gone wrong. Sometimes we think about heaven as just 
a relaxing place to lounge. It's so much more than that, isn't it? Because God is at work. God will bring every single one of my moments into his eternal presence and put right what has gone wrong. That should help us live with hope and perhaps even help us suffer with hope. Justice. Finally, in in a word, purpose. Look at verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Same sort of thing in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, so here's the teacher coming to, to an end of his thinking on this area. And, and as he begins to, to see and to describe that, that his uh, limited existence is the way things are, and that God is the, created, is the creator and, and the judge, he, he begins to accept his creatureliness and say, actually, this is what there is for me to do. This is what is good. Enjoy what God has put before us. Eat and drink and find joy in the things that we do and do good. One of the things that I have to say, I've found personally helpful and challenging in this is that the things around us, things around me, are are God's good gifts to be enjoyed. And and I am, to some degree, accountable for that. Those of you who are parents will will remember the the joy that you get when you give your son or your daughter that that present that they really have been looking for. And, And the continuing joy that comes from seeing them continue to enjoy it after they receive it. And conversely, then, your disappointment whenever you find it, discard it in the corner. And you think, I paid lots of money for that. And that began to to make me realize how dishonoring it is to overlook what God has given us, to treat it as of little importance, and even to refuse sometimes to find joy in what is in front of us. You see, if, if, if God will judge all things... And the Bible tells me to rejoice in the good things that God has given me, then I've got to take that seriously. And then also, do you see here, do good? We can do good. Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. You see, because God is in control, what we do is not wasted. Our, our labor is not in vain. He's able to take, you think about this, he's able to take the most insignificant little act and multiply it to an eternal purpose, to, to something, you know what it's like. We, we, we see a piece of calm water and, and we, we want to throw a stone into it and see how far the ripples will go. God is able to make ripples go for all eternity. We can do good and it ripple through all of eternity because God is able to do that. I, I, I don't see the purpose. I don't need to. I'm a creature. Those things are, are the job of the Creator. He tells me to do good. 
And elsewhere in Scripture, he tells me that those things that I, I do will not ultimately be random either. We, we, we thought this morning about the fact that uh, good works don't get us anywhere with God uh, as far as earning acceptance with Him is concerned, a hugely important theme in the Bible. But, but that does not mean that, that good is not important. And after talking about the fact that we are saved by grace and by the gift of God, not by what we do, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says there that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you think about that? Maybe you've had a little glance at your diary already for this week. You've got appointments on Monday. You've got meetings on Tuesday. You've got whatever through the week. God has prepared good works for you to do this week. Your life is not random, you see. There's purpose. You see, some people might see the, the limitless, the, the limitedness of our existence, the creatureliness of our existence as a, as a real cause for frustration. The, 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 the writer says, take joy in your eating and drinking and your work. And you think, goodness, there's got to be more than that. I can't Instagram that. But two quotes to finish with. One from David Gibson. Satisfaction, he says, comes when you know you are a time-bound creature and God is the eternal creator. Satisfaction lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my creaturely existence and accept the seasons of my life as coming from his good and wise hands. And then Derek Kidner says this. The believer, on the other hand, can accept the same kind of unpretentious program, that's eating and drinking and finding joy in your life. The believer, on the other hand, can accept the same kind of unpretentious program not as a stopgap, but as an assignment. That word really caught me. An assignment. It is a gift from God, an, alloc an, an allotted portion in life whose purpose is to know the giver and is part of his everlasting work. For God does nothing in vain. Nothing in vain. Phil Reichen has written a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he subtitles it, Everything Matters. Everything Matters. And because God is God, everything about your life does. Let's pray.